0: Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. We hope that you are doing just fantastic now, in spite of all the challenges that our world continues to throw at us. We hope you're finding some solace in good reading stories uh, when you're not juggling those professional and moral compasses in your day to day. Thank you for checking out our latest episodes and for continuing to make us part of your literary adventures. We've taken a short break recently but are really excited to be back, leading you between the covers of another exciting crime story. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by the Dust Jacket Dreadnought, the Literary Leviathan, the Chronicle Crushing Colossus, the Don to my Quixote, the Jekyll to my Hyde, the Behemoth to my Bulgakov, Joshua Taylor.
1: <laughs> I don't know, Scott Powell, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, Mother of Dragons, I don't have any titles for you, sorry man.
0: That's okay, I just I thought I'd mix it up today and uh, give you a good intro because it's been a while, hasn't it? And what is this proceeding today?
1: This is The Talented Mr Ripley by Patricia Highsmith.
0: Yeah, why did we decide to stick this one on our reading our reading for the series, Josh?
1: Well, I think it was simply because both of you and I are into Hitchcock and we know The Strangers on a Train was Patricia Highsmith. Highsmith is one of the uh, she's one of the,
0: the the big names in crime fiction.
1: She really is. But I mean, she's I don't think she's known by a lot of people. People just know, "Oh, mm. I know the talented Mr. Ripley or the Ripley books, or I I know of Strangers on a Train, but they don't know like. But you know, when it comes to mystery uh, writers in the feminine uh, perspective, people you know are familiar, more familiar with like Agatha Christie or Mm -hmm. Manette Walters for a more modern name. You know what I mean? So yeah, or Jillian Flynn, I suppose. The only thing I know about the talented Mr. Ripley was a long time ago for my uh, film studies class, and back in two thousand three, I think it was. I mm-hmm. did a uh, we ha- we were chosen we, for the class that we were I was taking. We had to analyze a scene uh, from a film, and there was a w- c- couple that you could take from the list that the professor authored. So I chose The Talented Mr. Ripley because a I haven't seen it, b the actors you know interest me, and c it just of all the, all the ones that was there, it was seemed something that I could really analyze based on what he was looking for. So cool. I was able to examine a scene from the film, and I love the movie. Uh, it definitely got me into Anthony Mingela's um, work. Mm-hmm. On an earlier episode, I might have mentioned that he was Canadian. I was incorrect. He's actually uh, British.
0: Yeah, yeah, we did the uh, fact check on that one. Yeah,
1: but he's mostly also known for a movie called Truly Madly Deeply uh, in the early '90s. That was his debut film, mm-hmm. or his big breakthrough film was that movie. I think it was Alan Rickman was in that movie, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Cool. I think maybe you you made that mistake about him being Canadian because Michael Ondaatje wrote the English Patient, and that's what that's what, a, ha- that's that's what a happened. book That we both like, yeah. So easy easy mistake to make, but yeah, the Talented Mr. Ripley. This was uh, the first Ripley story, and yes, it's. Uh, I don't know that she ever really intended there to be more because there was fifteen years between the first and the second one, Josh. But uh, it's certainly a popular story. Our job today, Josh, is to take listeners through the Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, And then give a few fast facts of Patricia Highsmith, recommend or not recommend the story. It's always fun when we come together. It's been a while since we've had uh, a chat. So, yeah, our reading's done. We're ready to go. And here are some fast facts on the author, Patricia Highsmith. So, Josh, according to John Sutherland, who published The Phenomenally Valuable Life of the Novelists, I don't know if you're familiar with that text, but it's a great tome of a book. It's wonderful. We've used it here on the show before, particularly when we were looking at Chandler and when we were looking at Graham Greene. Anyway, according to Sutherland, Patricia Highsmith's achievement was to, quote, produce fiction that contrives to be simultaneously compulsive and irresistibly readable, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't really think of a better way to describe Ripley than that. Simultaneously compulsive and irresistibly readable, huh?
1: Yeah, the book itself, in a way, maybe we're giving away a little bit of our thoughts towards it, but also the character and and also in in comparison to her own writing style. So that's
0: -hmm. that's fitting. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes on to say that her characters live lives of quiet psychopathy. Tragedy, death, and likable villains are everywhere in Highsmith's fiction. And uh, she's certainly an interesting figure. So let's, let's get into this lady, shall we? Let's, let's see what she's all about. Born Josh in Fort Worth, Texas, Mary Patricia Plangman entered the world on September the 13th, 1921. She was always chuffed at sharing a birthday with Edgar Allan Poe, which is perhaps a bit prophetic given the fact that she would be a nominee of the Poe Award later. Her parents were both artists but separated just before her birth. She was given her stepfather's surname at three years of age. Uh, She moved to New York City at the age of six and then back to Fort Worth for a year to live with her maternal grandmother at 12. She later referred to this as the saddest year of her life and felt abandoned by her mum. She eventually returned to New York City though and her mum and stepfather's home where she lived until going to college. And by all accounts, it's really here at her time at Barnard College uh, where she studied English playwriting and prose, that her creative industries really started to come to the fore. She graduated in 1942. Um, she had been writing before then, but not until after this point did her more serious short fiction start to come out. But uh, interestingly, when I say start to come out, it did it start to be really produced, I think, stuff that she was quite, you know, content with. But commercially, she was only published as a comic book writer in these early days, post-graduation. She really struggled to get work at the magazines that were in Vogue at the time. She really wanted to go after employment with Harper's Bazaar, Good Housekeeping, The New Yorker, and Vogue. Although they evaded her early, she would eventually see publication in almost all of them. So a little bit of, um, well, I, I wouldn't say it's karma, but, uh, you know, hurry up and wait type thing, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, not karma, more so uh, kismet? or
0: Yeah, well, sure, kismet, yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. okay. Okay.
1: Although she wouldn't like that that term based on her political (laughs) feelings.
0: We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, At this time in the 40s, in military alliance with the Red Army, communism uh, didn't really have any or many associated dangers. And like other intellectuals, she found herself drawn to its philosophy. Thanks to Truman Capote's recommendation, Highsmith was accepted into Yaddo for a summer artist's retreat in Saratoga Springs in 1948, and it was there that she started work on Strangers on a Train. Highsmith led a sexually challenged life, labelled by some of her friends as, quote, a lesbian with a misogynist streak. Wow. I mean, I'm thinking with friends like that man who needs enemies, you know? But anyway.
1: Yeah, that's, self, that's self-hatred, self uh, probably.
0: It is. Yeah. Now, I don't think she was ever in much doubt about what she enjoyed, but others had trouble adjusting to her. And we have to consider this was, you know, before the sexual revolution as well. Yes.
1: A lot of repression.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Big time. And that I think that peters down to some of her characters as well. Oh, I smith- for Sure did admit to trying to love men. Indeed, she got on well with them and enjoyed their company, just not in bed. And she would often say that love with men was like steel wool in the face. And though she didn't go in for it, she did occasionally experiment. But women, however, were always more attractive to Highsmith. Though some stuck, most of her relationships were transitory throughout her life, and none really breathed much beyond a year in length. As her age increased, growing alcoholism, a forceful nature, and mental health struggles kept many potential partners abjuring or out of the picture altogether. These factors blew the bellows upon her growing reputation as a hard and opinionated severe artist. She disliked feminism and was accused by many, including herself, of being anti-Semitic. She said a great many horrendous things over the years. Sound bites like, quote, If the Jews are God's chosen people, that's all one needs to know about God, end quote. She felt and stated openly that the welfare crisis in America was a fault of the African-American, despite being friendly with many black artists, and added to that racism by saying that she disliked Koreans because they ate dogs. Now, these aren't just shocking sounds... Yeah, wouldn't? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not trying to just, you know, if you issue a list of shocking sound bites, but we do need to mention the poor with the bad, just as we have for John Buchan and Conan Doyle before, in an effort to convey the figure's totality here on the show. Mm -hmm. And it also won't surprise you, I don't think, to learn that she was a committed atheist either. Not at all. So, what we've got here then is a picture of immorality and conflict certainly there to be drawn up, not unlike Tom Ripley. A perpetrator's blueprint does exist within Highsmith's own life, should one wish to take the tracing paper to the details, but I'm not that guy. I see her life experiences as informing her characters, not resulting in them. But there's no doubt that she struggled to make and keep friends. Many who knew her loved her friendship passionately and found her great and creative company. By all accounts, she had a loyal streak and was a good friend, but one had to be willing to ride her train and to accept that at times everyone would be relegated to a stranger status. Highsmith generally preferred the company of animals to people and had many cats. This is well known. She lived her later years in Switzerland and England. When she died in 1995 of leukemia, she left the world a rich woman and bequeathed about $3 million to the Yaddo Institution, which had put her on the writing path all those years ago. She published 22 novels, Josh, dozens of short stories, a number of essays and articles, and left over 8,000 pages of handwritten journal entries and notebooks. Highsmith's legacy in film is short but memorable, having produced the inspiration for one of Hitchcock's greatest films, not just of the 50s, but of his entire career there are six novels so-called in the ripley ad or there are six novels in the so-called ripley ad the talented mr ripley then 15 years later she resurrects the character although he never died really spoiler mm. <laughs> in ripley underground then a few years after that ripley's game followed by the boy who followed ripley and finally ripley underwater and those are the six is that six is that five
1: uh, the Ripley ad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One, two, three. They they list only five stories here.
0: Okay, so uh, five. five novels, so- not six. Okay,
1: not six. And uh, yeah, cool. yeah, five novels.
0: Nice one. Yeah. So I mean that that's just some fast facts on Patricia Highsmith. But I do have another little thing I'd like to share with you. That this comes from a book that I got a few years ago by Mason Curry. It's a book um, which you can't see because we're not on YouTube, but Josh can certainly see. Called Daily Rituals. Uh, How Great Minds Make Time, Find Inspiration, and Get to Work. Now, in here, there's a little section on the routines of Patricia Highsmith that I thought would be quite fun to share, because it does give you really good insight here into kind of how she worked and and how she produced. It's not a long section, but I'd like to read it all. So, Mason Curry here, guys, uh, just reading a bit from his book, Daily Rituals, from 2013. The author of such psychological thrillers as Strangers on a Train and The Talents of Mr Ripley was in person as solitary and misanthropic as some of her heroes. Writing was less a source of pleasure for her than a compulsion, without which she was miserable. Quote, "There is no real life except in working, that is to say in the imagination," she wrote in her journal. Fortunately, Highsmith was rarely short of inspiration. She had ideas, she said, like rats have orgasms. <laughs> Highsmith wrote daily, usually for three or four hours in the morning, completing 2,000 words on a good day. The biographer Andrew Wilson records her methods. Her favorite technique, to ease herself into the right frame of mind for work, was to sit on her bed surrounded by cigarettes, ashtray, matches, a mug of coffee, a donut, and an accompanying saucer of sugar. She had to avoid any sense of discipline and make the act of writing as pleasurable as possible. Her position, she noted, would be almost fetal, and indeed her intention was to create, she said, a womb of her own. Now, I've seen that on a couple of different sources, and I was listening to a couple of podcasts, actually. I think one was an NPR podcast, uh, an interview with um, one of her biographers. I don't believe it was Wilson, but, and he, um, or she rather, was confirming, yes, indeed, that, uh, you know, this fetal position would be quite a common way for Highsmith to wake up and kind of go into that creative zone, you know? Hmm. Highsmith was also in the habit of having a stiff drink before she started to write, not to perk her up. Wilson notes, quote, but to reduce her energy levels, which veered toward the manic. In her later years, Mm. as she became a hardened drinker with a high tolerance, she kept a bottle of vodka by her bedside, reaching for it as soon as she woke and marking the bottle to set her limit for the day. She was also a chain smoker for most of her life, going through a pack of galus, of galoises. G yeah, a u l o i s e s, Yeah, It's like a, it's a I French remember my name.
1: It's yeah. They mentioned, I believe, that in um, mm. one of the. Oh, I think I read it in Hemingway. Actually, that or in perhaps I can't recall mm. now. Or a, it was either Hemingway or Fleming, where I read the name of that cigarette brand.
0: Okay, oh well,
1: cool. I'll, 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 I'll figure it out. Yeah.
0: Galoisé. Galoises, Galoisé, A damn name. Good in matters of food, she was indifferent. One acquaintance remembered that she only ever ate American bacon, fried eggs, and cereal at all. All at odd times of the day. Ill at ease around most people, she had an unusually intense connection with animals, particularly cats, but also snails, which she bred at home. Smith was inspired to keep the gastropods as pets when she saw a pair at a fish market locked in a strange embrace. She later told a radio interviewer that, quote, "...they gave me a sort of tranquility." She eventually housed 300 snails in her garden in Suffolk, England, and once arrived at a London cocktail party carrying a gigantic handbag that contained a head of lettuce and 100 snails, her companions for the evening, she said. When she later moved to France, Highsmith had to get around the prohibition against bringing live snails into the country, so she smuggled them in, making multiple trips across the border with six to ten of the creatures hidden under each breast. (laughs) She was a card, man. She was a character. Certainly eccentric, certainly... Uh, full of opinion and contradictions, too. Lots contradictions, of, I, yeah, yeah.
1: I read she was like part of Amnesty International, but she was mm-hmm, also like, mm-hmm. uh, there's one line that I read from her regarding, you know, like her anti Semitism, and uh, she describes the Holocaust as the semi cost. Jeez. Mm, So you wonder though, like it's just things she's saying, is that like her bipolar mindset or is Mm -hmm. it almost like provocation to just to push people away? Like I think there's different, Uh, all these different walking contradictions, you know?
0: Yeah. Like there must've been part of her personality that wanted to wear that mantle, you know? Yeah.
1: Her uh, first book, um, which is kind of like semi-autobiographical, I read, uh, that was turned into a movie like with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara called Carol. So mm-hmm. I it heard was, that's yeah. that in, in, interesting. If you want to get a kind of a look about who, who she was and at, at the time, I guess when that when that movie was set and, and whatnot, yeah, it's very interesting.
0: So how how did Patricia Highsmith um, got attracted to the, the crime genre? Uh, it's it's quite interesting, you know. I mean, how she found her way in there because once once entrenched, boys she really did, yeah, totally. Uh, she really did work and and not just within it, but Kind of like a topic, you know, she was very, very well respected in in circles, and um, here we are years later reading the talented Mr. Ripley, which of course has been adapted many times into stage and screen, and uh, yeah, I think a, a very there's worthy a, addition to the show.
1: There's actually like uh, I believe a uh, is that a television series. Uh, Called Ripley, produced by mm-hmm. Steven Zalian, who was one of the co-writers of mm-hmm. Schindler's Lists, and starring Andrew Scott as Tom Ripley. Mm-hmm. And that is it a is, great cast, yeah. by the way.
0: It's a good cast, yeah. Uh, it is. It's filming in Venice. It was filming in Venice a couple of weeks ago, so that is definitely back on, uh, back in production. I saw a couple of production stills from it, so that that's going to be good to see when it comes out. It'll be interesting be to see Dexter. how these travelog features, yeah, come into play. Yeah. Well, buddy, look, um, I've, I've done the fast facts. Uh, you've got a summary prepared that's going to help uh, the audience through the strokes of the plot and uh, always done with your surgical attention to detail. So, why don't we cue to that uh, prepared summary and then we'll get, uh, we'll get our listeners back on the other side to light the pipes and, and get on with the show. Yeah, I'll bring it
1: up right now. With Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley, we are presented with a different perspective than that of what we have been accustomed to, and that is the perspective of the perpetrator. From beginning to end, the impact on us as readers is twofold. Will the protagonist get away with his crimes? And are we, on some level, rooting for him? We begin in New York City, the early 1950s. Tom Ripley, our protagonist, is a Boston-born 25-year-old confidence man with low ambitions, re-milking income tax money from old ladies and average Joes. He shares a brownstone apartment with Bob Delancey, an actual working-class man. Bob is an associate, not really his friend. His BFF is one Cleo, an artist type whom he visits occasionally. She is keen on him, but he does not reciprocate. Tom is complicated in this department, to say the least. One day, after leaving a night spot, Tom notices he is being followed. After ducking into another bar, he is relieved when his pursuer introduces himself as Herbert Richard Greenleaf, Sr. Herbert is the owner of a boat building company and the heir to the corporate throne, Herbert Richard Greenleaf, Jr., or Dickie, is AWOL in Italy living his best life. Dickie's mother has cancer and isn't going to be around for much longer and neither Greenleaf, Sr. feels is he so the prodigal son must come home. Why Tom Ripley? Well, Tom happened to be schmoozing somehow one time with the Shriver family, known associates of Dickie Greenleaf, who somehow mistook Tom as one of Dickie's friends. Tom agrees to accept Greenleaf Sr.'s proposal, find Dickie and convince him to come back home. Herbert agrees to take care of all Tom's expenses, including ship passage. So Tom Ripley leaves America behind for Italy, specifically the Almalfi Coast. Dickie Greenleaf is currently living down shore from Naples in a little place, fictional, called Mongibello. Mr. Greenleaf gave Tom pictures so he knows what Dickie looks like as well as Dickie's female friend, Marjorie Marge Greenleaf. Already exhausted by travel by ship, then by train, and then by bus, he easily locates Dickie and Marge at the beach. They are friendly to a fellow American and even invite him up to the house for a shower and lunch. But afterwards it's a friendly I will see you around right at the gate. Tom's tactic of being an associate of his father did not pan out the way he wanted. He encounters Dickie at the beach and embarrassingly reveals that he was sent by dear old dad to bring him home. This tactic is a success. Tom has found his way in. Tom quickly learns all he can about Dickie. Dickie the amateur painter with delusions of grandeur. Dickie the Americano that everyone in town waves to. Tom and he bond over drinks. Dickie loves Tom's impersonations of various people. Marge doesn't however, and Tom does his best to keep Marge out of the proceedings going forward. Trips are made to Naples, to Rome, where Tom and Dickie go on a bender while forgetting a dinner date with Marge. Marge is writing a book, so she occupies herself with that, but has grown wary of Tom and Dickie's fraternization. Dickie is having a blast getting back at his father with Tom, spending the per diem Mr. Greenleaf gave him for expenses. Tom has crossed the class threshold now, or believed he has, entering Dickie's world has given him great happiness. Marge is the only real thorn in his side, simply because, well, she's Dickie's girlfriend, but Tom is too narcissistic to see that. Then there's Dickie's fellow yuppie friend, Freddie Miles, an ox of a man that silently questions Tom's presence. Fausto, a young local man who taught Dickie the basics of Italian, offers the same tutelage to Tom. At this point, Tom is receiving lessons right from Dickie's balcony, and Tom has moved into the spare bedroom. Yes, despite one or two annoyances, namely Marge, all is going well for Tom Ripley in Montebello. Until that one instance, whilst the two go check the mail, more money from Greenleaf Sr. coming in, followed by a drink at Giorgio's, Dickie decides to pay poor neglected Marge a visit. Tom, of course, follows Dickie and only needs to glance at Marge's window to see the two of them about to engage in some makeup sex. Furious, Tom returns to the house and proceeds to try on Dickie's clothes and shoes, but dress up us when Dickie walks in with Tom in flagrante delicto. After a few WTFs, Dickie straight up asks Tom if he's gay. Tom denies this vociferously. Apparently Marge planted this seed in Dickie's head. Dickie is obviously at a loss with this breaking of boundaries and gives Tom the silent treatment for a few hours, but this doesn't last. But the seed is planted. A trip to Cortina is in the works. Dickie and Marge are very excited, and so is Tom. Marge is probably not excited about the Tom part. And Tom knows that he will have to put up with Freddie Miles, so he's not entirely excited either. Still, Cortina is being hyped up in Dickie's house, and Dickie is seeing more of Marge and Tom is feeling more like a third wheel, because he is. Tom needs to come up with something exciting, wild, chaotic, to bring Dickie back into Adventure Bros. Mondrabello 52 edition, and what better way than being smuggled to Bologna in coffins. Yes, Dickie is shockingly skeptical about the whole venture, but acquiesces to meet the local who proposed the idea to Tom. They meet at Giorgio's and Dicky hears what the shady character has to say and walks away. Tom is humiliated, embarrassed, angry, and desperate as he engages in a row with Dickie in the middle of the street. Dickie wants nothing to do with it and is put off by how crestfallen Tom is about the idea balloon being popped so viciously. He buys Tom off of some shots, but is nonplussed with Tom to say the least. Shortly after this altercation, Dickie tells Tom that they won't be going to Paris as they intended, but because Marge wants to work on her book for a few days, he invites Tom to come galanting up the coast with him. During this excursion, he tells Tom that he and Marge are going to Cortina without him. Dickie is outwardly friendly to Tom during this time, but Tom feels that this is a polite facade, masking the buildup to Dickie, sending him along his way once this holiday is over. Highsmith throughout the novel has given us access to Tom Ripley's inner thoughts, and he or she does not hold back. This outline cannot capture Tom's epiphany like having it lead up to this point in the preceding chapters could, so all I will say is Tom decides to kill Dickie and plans it out meticulously in the train cabin to San Remo. In San Remo, Dicky drives a nail into his coffin, suggesting Tom is admiring a human pyramid for more than just the surface level symmetry. Tom convinces Dickie to rent a boat between them. They do so. Dicky even seems to be enjoying himself for the first time during the trip. Tom decides he wants to swim. Dickie slows the boat down, and soon Tom grabs an oar and bludgeons Dickie to death. With some pratfalls and near-drowning, Tom disposes of the body, but not before making sure he has all of Dickie's possessions, including his rings, an article of his wardrobe he has never seen without. The blood-smeared boat is sunk off the shore with some rocks, and Tom, gathering up Dickie's belongings at the hotel, sneaks out of San Remo, and heads to Paris, where he wines and dines as Dickie Greenleaf. Tom has dyed his hair to mimic peroxide tips, but decides against the putty on the chin as he chillingly tells us how expression and cadence of voice as well as confidence help complete the transformation. I bet Dickie isn't laughing at Tom's impersonations anymore. Tom returns to Mongebello and begins to pack more of Dickie's things. He tells Marge that Dicky has decided to spend the next few months in Rome, and Dickie sent him down to get his things. Tom heads to Rome and sets himself at the Inglaterra Hotel. He corresponds with Marge's Dickie and picks up his allowance. A letter from Marge confirms Tom's suspicions that she thinks Tom is weird, or at least asexual. Tom is happy to stick the knife in Dickie and Marge's relationship while arranging to sell all of Dickie's things. Marge can keep the refrigerator though, but the true savagery is yet to come. Freddie Miles comes calling. He has tracked down Dickie in Rome and shows up at the hotel room. Tom doffs himself of any vestige of Dickie Greenleaf to speak to Freddie. Freddy is his snooty self and makes aspersions towards Dickie and Tom's relationship. Dickie is out painting somewhere, Tom tells Freddie, but Freddie ain't buying. Tom is smooth, however, and believes he has convinced Freddie that Dickie will get a hold of him later until Tom overhears Freddy talking to the concierge woman at the front desk. Freddy returns to the room, stomping like a bull, but is first incapacitated and then brained by an ashtray. Tom has another body on his hands. He sets up a whole scene of drinks and convo. Lasting a few hours, followed by the action of dragging Freddy to his Fiat convertible parked outside. All this done as late as possible, Tom then takes Freddy down the Via Appia Antica and doffs his corpse behind one of the many roadside ancient tombs. Freddie Miles' body is soon found, faster than Tom expected. The police visit him as Dickie Greenleaf and with some cool on the spot thinking, Oscars himself as not currently a suspect. But now everyone knows Dickie is in Rome and his name is mentioned in the papers. Prior to Freddy's demise, Tom was planning to head to Majorca, but it can only go as far as Sicily as he will be available to the Rome police if they need to speak to him. Tom is all set for Palermo, but has to navigate around Marge, who thought he was gone, Fausto who is on his way north with a stopover in Rome, and Van Houston, one of Freddy and Dicky's friends. Oh, and now the authorities are looking for Tom Ripley, as the boat in San Remo has been found. Tom is successful in evading all these things and heads to Sicily. Upon arrival in Palermo, Dicky quote-unquote, receives a Dear John letter from Marge. She is kind but bitter about his cowardice, but for not coming out regarding to Tom and is preparing to return back to America. Tom is disgustingly pleased at his victory, but to his chagrin, it turns out what he thought were perfectly forged signatures on the remittances of Dickie's allowances have been rejected and are now under analysis. With Mr. Greenleaf and the authorities brought back in, especially since Marge informed the police she ran into Tom Ripley in Rome, it is time to abandon Sicily. Tom heads to Naples but decides to doff the regalia of Dicky Greenleaf and return to the form of Tom Ripley. Where is Tom Ripley? The authorities are wondering. Well, Tom answers that question. After taking Dickie's things all packed in a briefcase to the American Express in Venice under the name Fanshaw. Tom Ripley resurrects himself by purchasing an used car upcountry and to return to Venice to turn himself in. He convinces the Venetian police and the Roman inspector Roverini of his ignorance and innocence for after briefly speaking to Marge in Rome around the time Dicky fled to Sicily, he went north and lost himself amongst the villages of the Romagna. Vindicated, or at least so far, he rents a palazzo in Venice and lives his best life. However, he does write a despairing letter to Mr. Greenleaf that Dicky may have killed himself. But his peace is not for long as Marge crashes the party in Venice. Tom invites her to stay at his place when she calls, and he puts up with her adamantine resolve that Dickie didn't kill himself. She is civil to her host, however. Perhaps connecting her with Tom is, is a way for her to somehow reconnect with Dickie. Mr. Greenleaf is in Rome, she says. Tom plays a cool and invites Marge to a few get-togethers with Tom's new Venetian friends. Tom has a palazzo and two servants, but it's clear that this circle seems only interested in Tom because of his celebrity involving Dickie Greenleaf's guilt and disappearance over Freddie Miles. Mr. Greenleaf arrives in Venice shortly after. He is not looking well. He tells Tom that a private Dick named McCarran is coming up to Venice to meet with Tom for some questions. That evening, while repairing the torn bra strap, Marge locates the leather box to which Tom has stored Dickie's rings. Tom is relaxing on the couch downstairs when she confronts him. Grabbing onto his shoe with his inner thoughts betraying to us that he is about to kill her, he realizes that this is not an accusation of guilt from Marge, but the beginning of her realization that he is dead and that he killed himself. Tom convincingly, at least to Marge anyway, certainly not to us, explains how Dicky gave his rings to Tom before he left Rome with instructions to look after him. Marge's epiphany saves her life. The next day, the rings are presented to Mr. Greenleaf, who is now more than convinced Dickie either took his own life or disappeared completely. But Tom isn't out of the woods yet. McCarran the Shamus arrives and he lays down all the facts. The forgeries are dismissed, given that the American examiners were undecided if they were legitimate or not. The rings, however, indicate what Tom proposed to Marge, that Dickie gave him to Tom because he was either going to kill himself or disappear. McCarran takes Tom downstairs in the hotel bar and after the tension couldn't get any higher, they both agree that Dickie must be dead. McCarran even seemed to get the impression, despite Tom's refusal to admit it, that Dickie may have killed Freddy. Marge is despondent and defeated. Dicky is gone. Marge and Mr. Greenleaf return to Rome, and Tom prepares for his trip to Greece. As the time nears for his odyssey to begin, he tries his luck again and refers to the last will and testament of Dicky Greenleaf he himself typed up on Dickie's now disposed typewriter. He sends it to Mr. Greenleaf and continues his preparations. But with the day approaching, karma comes calling. The case belonging to a Mr. Fanshawe that Tom left in the American Express in Venice has been discovered. Inside it are all of Dickie's clothes, toothbrushes, toiletries, and his passport. Tom's sojourn to Greece has now become an escape hatch. He boards his ship, devastated to be heading to his ideal world as a fugitive. He curses himself for trying the will. I agree, Tom. It was the dumb idea. And, as expected, he spots several officers waiting at the Piraeus, the ancient port of Athens. But they pay him no mind. A newspaper stand nearby explains to him that despite the discovery of the suitcase and Dickie's passport, the evidence suggests that Mr. Greenleaf deposited the suitcase to take it off his hands and went off to kill himself, possibly drowning San's clothes. A stay of execution for Tom, because the suggestion of the will in which Dickie left Tom all his money could cause a reconsideration and new motive in Dickie's disappearance. A message awaits for him at the American Expression Athens. It's from Mr. Greenleaf, and he will honor Dickie's final wishes. Tom Ripley is free and clear. We, the reader, sigh with relief, but is it for him, for Tom, or is it for ourselves?
0: Nice work, Josh. Very well done. A fulsome summary there for listeners. And uh, if you weren't familiar with the plot before, or if you'd forgotten some details, and Josh has just reminded you. Okay, bud, why don't you explain a thing or two about how these pipes work, just in case any listeners are joining for the first time here on the show?
1: All right. So, pipes is an acronym P is for principal, i.e., the main character. Then you have I for investigation. This is more or less just how the story unfolds and also the proficiency of the writing Mm. of the narrative itself, you know, comments about the style of the author and how it flows. The next P is for perpetrators, so the antagonists or antagonists of the story. And then we have E for the environs, uh, the atmosphere that is evoked by the story. Uh, Does it impact us or not? Then we finally have S for the supporting cast, which is like all the other additional characters, how we feel, how they related to the story, how they serve the story. All of these categories are out of five. We come to a final total of 25 at the end, which is not essentially saying like based on the ratings that what we really feel about the book as a whole, it's more of just a wave of like analyzing what we think are important faucets of, of what a good mystery novel should be.
0: That's right. Yeah. And we, we use the, the Pipes acronym because it, it provides us with a scoring index for when we want to do our foolish things like ranking and and the best of. But <laughs> as Josh says, it's uh it's really just a lead towards that. It's a gesture towards a holistic uh, a kind of aesthetic feel for the text too which we always do separate a little bit I remember when we were looking through the canon of Sherlock Holmes you know we had some stories that scored quite poorly and yet they found their way into our best of list because there's just something I know. about them that worked you know it was it's quite cool something about them
1: it's, it's like when you watch like a movie it was like when you have like someone like from, from for me, for example, I'm, I'm sure it's you and some other people as well who have a really good knowledge of film theory and history or are able to analyze a film in a critical sense. And like I can analyze a film in a critical sense and go, oh, that was absolutely brilliant. I'll never watch it again. But it was absolutely <laughs> yeah. brilliant. And then I could go, you know, put on like, uh, like a Bond film, for example, and, I, and even like a Roger Moore era one, the you know, Moonraker or something. And I can utterly enjoy it to a full capacity, mm-hmm. but I'll give it mm-hmm. a failing grade. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's so right. Yeah. I, I just yeah. think it's the ability of disconnecting your critical self from your mm-hmm. guilty pleasure self, I suppose you could say. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've given our rundown of Patricia Smith. I've given you my breakdown of the narrative and Talented Mr. Ripley. So you have an understanding about how the story is, well, twists and turns. So our Mm -hmm. breakdowns will be pretty clear to you as we go through. I will point out, though, that we might be kind of going off course a little bit because Scott and I have both been to Rome. We've both Mm -hmm. been to Naples. Mm -hmm. So we might have some (laughs) anecdotes in comparison. We were there, I pro- we were probably standing right where Tom dropped uh Freddie Miles' body. Dropped off Freddie Miles' body. So, <laughs> yeah. probably standing on that very tomb, because I know I stood on one of those Appian Way tombs. And I'm pretty did, sure yeah. Freddie Miles is behind there somewhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he could be, he could be, man. Uh, I don't know, or someone is behind there. Someone's behind there. Yeah. yeah. But so,
1: we, we we might go, we might pitter back and forth between that, I guess, when you talk about the atmosphere, you know?
0: I think we're going to have to, yeah, because this this book is such a travelogue. And like you say, it was 15 years ago this year, Josh, that we went there in October. Uh, great trip. Awesome trip. And uh, since then, it's I've been to Venice man. twice, and I've been to L'Aquila in Italy. I, I've been really, really fortunate. I've had a lot of trips in Italy, both up in the Alps for ski trips and down south, and the trip to Sicily I took uh, just a year after you and I were there. Yeah, there's all sorts of features here that um, are transportative, you know? Like, But mm. uh, let's start with the P here. We're getting ahead of ourselves. And I should also say, maybe a caveat here Tom Ripley is both the perpetrator and the principal. So we're probably going to be Kids. mixing our scores around a little bit here with this one. It'll be neat. <laughs> It'll be neat to see how we cut it up yeah. and serve it up. He is but, uh, And
1: protagonist. <laughs>
0: yeah, he is. He really and is. And protagonist. So I'm, I'm going to say this, all right? When it comes to the scoring in general on all the categories, It's going to feel today like I'm gushing a little bit because um, I'll show my hand up front that I thought this principal character was almost as good a principal character as I've read in a single novel. Now, not thinking of the whole series, who knows how his arc changes? We haven't got to them Mm -hmm. all. And I know several of our listeners will have got to them. But in this book, I thought that Tom Ripley was as good as the character that I would want to read And believe in as any. I I went four and a half for him. And I'll explain why I took the half mark away a little bit later. But as a main character, like, she's just got it so down. Like, he's so believable. How did you feel about him?
1: Well, I would use two ways to describe him. Sociopathic,
0: Mm -hmm. but sympathetic. Sympathetic for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because sociopathy isn't one of those things that you're born with. It's something you acquire. And mm-hmm. it was his person, his. Ba- I'm not defending his character in any way. He does terrible things in this story, terrible things, but you understand why he does it, you know, and you understand like how the why came to be in his, in his personality and how all the events that, lit- that triggered those moments of, of him to make those terrible decisions and cause pain to other people you were able to get into his head and not say this guy, you can't just write this guy off saying like, he is some like complete monster, you know, there is a, (laughs) there, there is a, uh, there, there's a mind, there's a disturbed mindset behind him. And I don't think he means, I don't think he wants to be, I don't think he wants to be malicious. I don't think he wants to be evil per se. I think he just wants to get along with everybody, you know, and, and as someone, you know, who has always had, you know, th- think of any any individual. And I think this is why he's sympathetic. There's a lot of people out there that are introverted, who don't know how to relate to other people. And they got to find a way to connect. And once you find your way to connect, then of course, things are a lot better. And the thing with Tom is that, unlike today, where people can easily connect with any group of people, most likely, you know, even with of higher class, Tom had that also, that class between him, that class struggle that dividing line, I guess you could say, between like the working class and and the, the jet setting life that Dicky led, mm-hmm. that he had to cross that line, but he had to commit a crime to get past that line. But he, once he was in that period when he was imitating Dickie or even when he was with Dicky, he felt himself on top of the world, and and he could he, he was given a taste of a life that he would never even imagine. And he was always Mm -hmm. going for that and he did it, but it just showed at the time what you had to do to go from that point from where you started, like in the gutter, all the way to where he is now. And all that, the only way that you can really do that is if you're, to be successful at that time is if you were born with money.
0: Yeah, that's right, yeah.
1: You know, you had a silver spoon in your mouth like Mm -hmm. like Dickie Mm -hmm. did. So it's very relatable in terms of like class struggle, in terms of like... Uh, how, emotional connect, how to connect, having difficulty connecting uh, to, to people. I'm not trying to put it off saying that like people who are introverted, you know, are going to end up like Tom Ripley. That's not the case. You have to have <laughs> to want something so bad that you'll cross a line to do it. And that's what Tom did. He crossed that line. And when he saw that he was going to be cut off from that, that's when he acted in a very bad way, uh, leading to, of course, to Dickie's death, uh, murder. And then, of course, the subsequent situation he had himself in afterwards—you know, Freddie Miles and the snowball effect and all—and all of that. So, it's and, and I it uh, so. Like,
0: just just to pick up yeah. on something you said, like it's remarkable how he wants that life so badly, even though of the class he is not. But it's it's remarkable to me that when he gets it by doing that deed, as you say, which he needs to do in order to attain that social status. He's immediately got the affability, the decorum, the sort of charity and the adventurousness of someone with the money. You know, he has it. So it's almost like he's been preparing for it his whole life. And all he needed was the right guy to come along, the right opportunity to costume himself up there with the rest of the world, you know, or with but the it was other almost half.
1: sheer serendipity, though, which, is, which mm-hmm. is really interesting about it. Because, you know, he's right at the, at the beginning, you know, he's conning people, pretending to be the IRS and then he mm-hmm. sees someone following him into a bar. He's suspicious, and then it's like Dickie Greenleaf's dad who offers him a job to find his son. And and mm-hmm. and so if 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 he had been at a different bar at a different night, or if he had just like spent a night with Cleo or something, and 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 missed to yeah, missed yeah. Uh, Herbert Greenleaf, this opportunity mm-hmm. would have been bypassed completely. And it was it only have, yeah. because of how he was introduced to Dicky. Uh, through this method, and that's how the chain reaction of events. So in a way, he's reacting to everything that's happening to him. uh, And so he's not like, it's not, his Dickie's murder is quickly premeditated. Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, uh, I don't think Tom had any intention at the very beginning of the story to kill, to get to where he wanted to go. Not from the point of view that we're given by Patricia Highsmith anyway.
0: No, I agree. And we can talk about when that becomes a, a reality when we get to talk about the investigation. But yeah, Tom Ripley is just so fascinating to follow. He He's not a wooden character to whom things happen, right? Like his best and his ambitions are like a lot of our own, I think, Josh. it's It's easy to read the book and kind of root for him because we are all a little bit like him. And we react similarly to new places, new people, new situations. Like, we want to please people. I think most of us would want to please people. And so that side of Tom is very realistic. It's very sympathetic. But what makes him so good to follow, aside from aside from that, I, I think, is the calculations that he makes throughout the story. Like, we are rooting for him because he's cautious. Like, we know, yeah. and sometimes we forget, we forget, he's even not though we know... He's not a stupid protagonist. No, 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 not at all. And he's not just like a mindless killer, as you've already said, but he's a cautious yeah. killer for whom you know, we're we're given a little insight into how his mind works and we're rooting for him because he's taking the necessary steps and we're wondering, will he get away with it now because he's done A, B and C? And yes, indeed he does. So like after, after Freddie's death, for example, right? Like he waits before he goes to the police because he doesn't want it to appear as though he's just been scanning the newspapers and waiting for them to say, anybody with information, please come. You know, he waits a couple of days, he lets it breathe. And then he says, oh, I was out traveling and I saw this. I thought I should bring myself in. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if if the guy, Mm -hmm. if the first guy off the street, 10 minutes after the morning edition comes in and he says, oh, uh, you know, this guy was my friend, it's going to look suspicious. So he waits a little while, you know? And I also feel like his self-loathing, which is quite prominent throughout the story, I think that helps provide his character with dimension as well. What, yeah. what did you think? What did you think about that? Loathing I think the self-loathing,
1: self-loathing. W- w- was a big thing about it. And this is what I, a topic I want to broach on here because I think it's inherent, you know, it's in the mm-hmm. writing is the, is the homosexual aspect of Tom Ripper.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: now, d- he doesn't show any activity in that regard in this book. Uh, he doesn't really, he's kind of asexual kind of and in a way he is because he just wants to be someone else but he also wants to like
0: mm.
1: he wants to connect to other people but then he realizes that he could be a better person or or do what that other person does even better and then he goes beyond that and then he kind of just like absorbs that person so he's like he's parasitical but he's also uh-huh. kind of like anybody he, he's successful at it because he almost absorbs that individual and becomes that individual yeah,
0: it, yeah. it's it,
1: it's really interesting how he just like becomes that individual and tries to be a better version of that person you know
0: it yeah i think though you know buddy like you you asked about the homosexuality i think that there's really something here and i'm not going to make an autobiographical case at all okay i'm not going to do that but i do think there's something really interesting here in reading the character because you could very well pose the question if he was allowed to express himself in you know in a social way sexually, the way he feels, if these insecurities and this self-loathing were to have been tempered a bit, were to have been uh, massaged out of him a little bit more by a softer society around him, a more receptive artist community, would he have killed Dickie? Because if you think about it, if you think about it, like what, what, what set him over the edge was when they went to Cannes and he saw the gymnast and there was that second comment about, oh, you're looking at the men, you know, you're looking at the men in the water. And yes. that really starts to boil him up because he feels like he can't yes. be himself. So I think if Tom Ripley could er, and did live in a more liberal time, if he did, uh, if he was able to, to kind of offer himself to the world the way he wanted to, the way he felt proudly, the way he felt like he was himself, he would be a gay man. And that would maybe help with so many of his his problems, you know? And Oh, for sure. I just, like, I just think, like, killing Dickie wouldn't have happened if Tom had been out about being gay, and he just would have told Dickie, fuck off, Dickie. You know what I mean? That would have been it. Yeah. But Dickie has that sort of smarm about him where he's like, well, like like so many did, right? And it was customary at the time to sort of be suspicious of gay behavior, particularly if you're insecure yourself as a heterosexual, then yeah. you have to big it up, right? And there's so much going yeah. on here psychologically and emotionally.
1: I don't know if Dickie himself had like or he might have had thoughts, you know, like, you know, he was a maybe it, it, it's very possible. But I mean, it was his I think it was his conversation with Marge, uh, you know, before, before his that, murder. Yeah. Well, yeah. Be, well, way before his murder that indicated because because it's that moment where uh, uh, Tom is putting on Dickie's clothes when R- mm-hmm. Dickie goes mm-hmm. up to uh, to visit Marge. And then when he comes back and he sees him all dressed in his clothes and stuff like that, he out, he instantly goes in that conversation about, you know, are you a queer, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. it gets, and because uh, Marge thinks that or something like that, right? Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so, and uh, then of course, he gets that letter from Marge when he's Dicky and Marge is saying like, oh, well, I don't even know if he's queer, is he asexual? Like, what is he? And then, mm-hmm. so that just, his hatred, you know, his self-hatred burns more and more because he can't express himself and he's defensive yeah. because in a way he probably knows that Marge is right, but... Uh-huh. At the same time, he doesn't want to admit that, you know, so he's self-loathing in that mm-hmm. way. And and the thing is, like, he justifies the death of Freddie Miles because he was a bigot, or he thought that Freddie Miles was a bigot, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's and, like, you know, I'd like to that. That's what you get like for
1: having your mind in in the gutter, Fred, uh, Freddie, you know, you, yeah. you're, that's why you're dead. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what it, what happens at the end of that passage after he disposes yeah. of his body.
0: I'd like to ask our listeners, actually, if there's anybody out there who's read a good kind of queer criticism of the story, you can email us at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com or just catch us on Instagram. I'd really be interested in reading like a, a good queer criticism of this book because I think it's fascinating 50, 60 years on from its, its time of publication, just how 65, 67 years after its publication, how much the world has come on. I would love to see if there's yeah. anyone who has who has done really good work, I'm sure academically, you know, there's stuff out there. Uh, I would just like to get my hands on something like that. It'd be it'd be fantastic to read, uh, you know, it would. a queer queer theory yeah. on this one. Yeah,
1: bring your thoughts on that. Anybody who's listening, absolutely. We would we would love that. Uh, and just to add, if, for the Anthony Magella uh, 1999 film, it's very clear that homosexual mm-hmm. aspect mm-hmm. in
0: in the film for sure. Well, I do think um, it's clear in well, the book as well. I don't think Highsmith hides away from it, but it she is. doesn't make it. She doesn't make it the precept of his character. No, she doesn't make it the it thing that kind of motivates him. It's it's part of why he expresses himself, perhaps the way he has to. Um, but I don't think he's going around killing people because he's homosexual and he can't be straight. Exactly. Like, I don't think that's what's going on. I prefer on. No.
1: the book on that. Yeah. I I do like. I do really enjoy that movie, but I do prefer uh-huh. the book and the characterization of Tom Ripley because yeah, yeah. he's a complex individual he's not just a homosexual who kills people mm-hmm. a repressed homosexual that kills people he's a complex individual he is someone who was bullied by who had a you know started his life in the gutter lost his parents and then and then what after he lost his parents his his uh, aunt takes him in and his aunt thinks yep. he's a quote unquote sissy so he's yeah. had this kind of mm-hmm. he's been basically uh punched down from the very beginning and he's someone who is just doing what he can to survive. Uh, hmm. And, you know, he's not willing, but he, but he's so ambitious for something better than what he is that he doesn't have yeah. the patience of, like, getting some nine-to-five job and, you know, maybe marrying someone. maybe But maybe he doesn't want to marry a woman and have kids. Maybe he wants to love men, but he can't. And so, you know, like, it's there's complexities in this story.
0: More and than he just can't because he doesn't war. have the money. Yeah, he, he doesn't have the money. Like that's it. In order to be that's right. an out and, a, and an open gay man, he has to have the money to protect and to defend himself. He has to have the yes. money to hide away from society and also to use society. And he doesn't have that. And so this is the this is the reason why I would be so interested to read the social histories of um, of a queer theory kind of reading of this book because I uh, I'm quite ignorant to some of it. And I I'd really like to learn more about that, about kind of, you know, how identity is so strictly linked and, you know, sexual representation is so strictly linked to class too. That's a remarkable uh, narrative in itself.
1: If you look at a lot of like the actors of of, like a lot of old school actors, for example, like, um, uh, what's his, like even like Cary Grant who was Mm -hmm. revealed Mm -hmm. to be bisexual, uh, Mm -hmm. He had money and power they, or the studios had money and power to hide that from people.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Or Rock Hudson, for example, too, right? It wasn't until like afterwards, you know, he was diagnosed with AIDS and Yeah. Well, he could be yeah. he was a homosexual. He, I'm not saying that he had AIDS because he was homosexual.
0: That was mm-hmm. just, No, I don't know. No. Because no,
1: no, no. that's not a very good connection to make, I understand. But I'm just saying it's is
0: Yeah, that it was, was secretive. Yeah
1: it was secreted ex- exactly mm-hmm.
0: you know another thing yes. i liked about tom's character josh and i wonder what you think of this if you want to chip in on it is that i think he's remarkable at reading a room you know like he he wins over Dicky, which is ultimately the necessary win for the whole story to take place right but not wins marge. over yeah well not marge no but he, he wins over Dicky with false modesty and humility yes. right and because he acknowledges when he arrives that his father gave him the money and sent him there and he earns dickie's trust by coming clean as soon as he sniffs out that that father-son relationship isn't strong the first inkling he gets tom changes his tune and because he he's not sure of how he's going to approach dickie but once he does and once he has a chat with him and he senses that his dad and his his dad is not
1: the first encounter when they meet at the beach he doesn't really have anything it's like well Okay, you're a fellow mm-hmm. person, and right. uh, okay, that you're you're a fellow American, and come up to our place for welcome to Mangiabello. Come up to our place for lunch, and then and that's it, right? Yeah, and then, that's but exactly it wasn't until right. the next meeting was when he throws on the the humility, as you said,
0: yeah, because he knows at that point, oh, you and your dad don't get on, and so I'll just read a little bit here from the text. Mm-hmm. How did he ever meet you? This is Dicky asking asking Tom uh, about his how his dad met him. "'Through the Shrivers. I hardly know the Shrivers, but there it was. "'I was your friend, and I could do you a lot of good,' they laughed. "'I don't want you to think I'm someone who tried to take advantage of your father,' Tom said. "'I expect to find a job somewhere in Europe soon, "'and I'll be happy to pay him back my passage money eventually. "'He bought me a round-trip ticket. "'Oh, don't bother. It goes on the Burke the Greenleaf expense list. "'I can just see Dad approaching you in a bar. "'Which bar was it?' "'Rahul's. Matter of fact, he followed me from the green cage.' Tom watched Dickie's face for a sign of recognition of the green cage, a very popular bar, but there was no recognition. They had a drink downstairs in the hotel bar. They drank to Herbert Richard Greenleaf. So, you know, he, he reacts based on what he reads. And that's very deductive, very deductive, you know, to his own, to his own mind, you know, or to his own gain.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, though, how, like, he's easily, so at this time, he's, into, uh he, he has Dickie now, but at, but at the beginning, Marge was very friendly to him just because as a fellow mm-hmm. American, right? Yeah. She was friendly yeah. to him. It's when they go back to his place again, when he goes back afterwards to Dickie's place and she sees Tom uh-huh. there with, with him. Mm-hmm. And then Tom is doing that story about... uh Make well, he does like this impersonation of like some British woman in the subway, or not understanding how to mm-hmm, use mm-hmm. the system or something, right? And and Dicky loves it, right? Because I think oh, Dicky loves, loves it. Yeah, yeah Dicky loves it because Tom is entertaining him, mm-hmm. and, uh, directly, Marge sees like some, but Marge sees the connection between Tom and Dicky happening there a yep. little bit. Yeah, and and, totally. and and but. It, and, she, and she's like, I don't find it funny, she said. Like, you mm-hmm, know, like, she, mm-hmm, she doesn't get it. She's not rude about it. She's like, I don't find it funny. But I can see that being like an awkward moment. And Tom ticks that off in the back of his head immediately when it happens, too.
0: Yeah. So. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 He reveals his criminal skills. Like, when he says, oh, I can impersonate anybody. Like, he tells them that <laughs> right at the start, right? Which is, of course, a big anvil foreshadowed, just dropped right in there. But they, they don't they don't pick it up. Obviously, they don't I love think that it line he, neat he that says Heisman later on. Puts it there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great little bit, and I love that line later on when he says like, "You don't have to, like he he was talked about how he's going to use putty on his nose to look like Dicky, but then he took the putty off, and it's like you just got to make the right expressions and exactly, say things yeah. a certain way, mm-hmm. and yeah. just have that kind of vague kind of mosaic I, of that person's uh, that person's identity on you know just so that. The personality is the, is what you need to exude, not the physical mm-hmm. yeah, details.
0: That's right, and you need you need brass balls and conviction, and this guy's got them, man. Confidence,
1: exactly, yep.
0: and he's he's definitely definitely got them. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, I mean, I went four and a half for the principal here, and I went four and a half for the perpetrator as well, and I'm I'm putting I'm telling you both of them because although there is that split between the characters. It's the conflict of the character that I think what is what kind of connects these two categories, right? Like normally, we would just talk principles, the investigation, the perpetrators, but the perpetrator is the principal. so i don't I don't feel like what we're talking about now doesn't also connect to him as a murderer, you know? Like the conflict <laughs> in the conflict in Tom reflects a conflict in the reader. And I don't know if you read it the same way, but to me, it's not a schizophrenia, but that bipolar aspect to Tom. And the swings of his mania are, of course, exaggerations of what we experience as a reader, but we do go from cheering for Tom to also despising his decisions, right? We root for him and we go against him. We want him to get away with it, but we question ourselves for wanting it. And the character exactly. and the reader, I know. Are, are they're in a simpatico, which is so interesting, the way it pivots that reading. And I know that Highsmith isn't the first to play with, like, you know, the narrated villain and the sympathetic villain. But man, this is probably the first book that I've read that I can recall from a narrative because there's that stream of consciousness thing going in here into the character. But I think that's probably the most sympathetic villain I've read to my recent memory. Anyway, you know,
1: I, I totally agree um, just a second, Scott. I have a pa- a passage here I want to read. I'm going to get mm-hmm. to it right now. So this is the passage in which he describes that he's going to kill Dickie.
0: Yeah, that's a good this one. Is like, yep. yep. Uh, what page is it in your edition? I'm using, a, uh, I'm using a vintage edition. What have you got over there? I just,
1: just got to find it here now. Just a second.
0: Finds on like page 88, I think, or 86 when he makes a decision. And this is just after they leave Cannes, right? And he's been called, he remembers his Aunt Daddy talking sissy, sissy, because Dicky has just called him up for looking at the boys, right? In the water. Yeah. Dickie, Dickie is when a bigot were, when, as well. You know, he is.
1: Oh, oh he is a bigot. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like, you got to look at Dickie's perspective here. Like, he's obviously trying to have a relationship with Marge, and he wants to be happy. He has a right to be, you know, not interested in men. And, you know, and, and I can see how it eventually he can see Tom, like, even though we might disagree with his attitude towards Tom, if if Tom wasn't, you know, the killer that he ended up being, uh, he's Dickie still has his own, his own right to be one, the way that he is, right? And... He does take Tom on that trip to San Remo. He can't. we not going to take him to Paris. That's not going to happen. He's taking him to San Remo. It's like his final courtesy of saying, like, you know what? Like, I feel somewhat bad that I'm going to I'm, I'm going to doff you off. He feels bad about it. I think. Mm-hmm, I think Dickie mm-hmm. does in a way. Mm-hmm. But uh, but as he has the the but but then he's kind of resigned himself to doing it because there's that scene where like he's sitting on the train. And he just wants to sleep and he he just says, I'm just going to go to sleep Mm because he doesn't want to have any interaction. But then Tom is having this crazy breakdown in his mind on the train. Mm -hmm, And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden Dickie puts his hand on his knee and saying, Tom, are you all right? It's almost like, you know, so Dickie is sympathetic towards Tom, but he Mm -hmm. has to do what he has to do for his own life. You know, like, so it's, a yeah, Tom is seeing all this as if like this guy is just like, he's just trying to find every way to justify what he's about to do.
0: That's and right. He's
1: yeah. just not seeing things through Dicky's perspective.
0: Um, yeah, rejected. He just sees it as a rejection for which he needs to plan his death. Right, and 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 that's that motivates that personal identity theft. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating how Highsmith writes the the justification, as you say.
1: Dicky said absolutely nothing on the train. This is page ninety five in my book, by the way. Eighty seven. Uh, Dicky said. Dicky said absolutely nothing on the train. Under a pretense of being sleepy, he folded his arms and closed his eyes. Tom sat opposite him, staring at his bony, arrogant, handsome face, at his hands with the green ring and the gold signet ring. It crossed Tom's mind to steal the green ring when he left. It would be easy. Dicky took it off when he swam. Sometimes he took it off when he showered at the house. He would do it at the very last day, Tom thought. Tom stared at Dickie's closed eyelids, a crazy emotion of hate, of affection, of impatience and frustration was swelling in him, hampering his breathing. He wanted to kill Dickie. It was not the first time he had thought of it. Before once or twice or three times, it had been an impulse caused by anger or disappointment. An impulse that vanished immediately and left him with a feeling of shame. Now he thought about it for an entire minute, two minutes, because he was leaving Dickie anyway. And what was there to be ashamed of anymore? He had failed with Dickie in every way. He hated Dickie because however he looked at what had happened, his failing had not been his own fault, not due to anything he had done, but due to Dickie and Dickie's inhuman stubbornness and his blatant rudeness. He had offered Dickie friendship, mm-hmm. companionship, and respect, everything he had to offer, and Dickie had replied with ingratitude and now hostility. Dicky was just shoving him out in the cold. If he killed him on this trip, Tom thought he could simply say that some accident had happened. He could. He had just thought of something brilliant, he could become Dickie Greenleaf himself. He could do everything that Dickie did. He could go back to Manjabello first and collect Dickie's things, tell Marge any damn story, set up an apartment in Rome or Paris, receive Dickie's check every month, and forge Dickie's signature on it. He could step right into Dickie's shoes. He could have Mr. Greenleaf, senior, eating out of his hand. The danger of it, even the inevitable temporariness of it, which he vaguely realized, only made him more enthusiastic. He began to think
0: of how... Hmm. There's that pathology just at the end there, hey? Oh, yeah. Nice one.
1: You were four and a half.
0: I went four that- and a half for both, for both principles and for, protag- uh, and for uh, perpetrator. But, you know, yes. I just wanted to... I just kind of wanted to get a final word before we move on to some of the quicker categories. I, I just want to get your opinion on Tom as a social engineer, because to me, when I'm reading him, I know that he's going to think two or three steps ahead, right? Like, he's always thinking about Marge's reaction to things, even if he's in a different part of the country. Like, how's she going to react? She's going to show up in Rome. I know she's going to show up in Rome. So what do I need to do yeah. in order to secure my alibi for what happens next, right? Like, how careful he is in playing the tourist card, you know, like when he heads to Palermo in Venice and he leaves addresses for the police and he says, oh, let me know, here's where I'm going to be. Like, he's so clever about that. He's so forward about that. How do you read him as a social engineer? Like, did you see him make any mistakes at all that he couldn't obviously clean up himself? It was very,
1: very, very meticulous. Like he mm-hmm. had everything, when he, like once he had his brainstorm, his epiphany, he had, he just laid it all out. Uh, There's a couple of slip ups that he made. Of course, was like leaving the green, leaving the the, the bag with the green rings around for Marge to find. Uh, there was the whole thing about, about like the luggage left at the hotel in in Venice, I believe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was at the American there, Express. There things, no, at the American at the American Express. Express. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So there was definitely some fatal slip ups that in the age of in the modern day would have probably nailed him.
0: Yeah, that, that's, uh, interesting. Kind of, that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you that as well. Um, I'll let you finish your thought first. It's not perfect, it. but it, yeah.
1: I would say he's a genius at what he was doing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Who was that other con man, like the young guy that DiCaprio portrayed a couple of years, like about, I think it was in the 70s. Remember that movie Catch Me If You Can? That was based mm-hmm. off a true story. Yeah, and yeah, that, yeah, That guy was a con man as well. Yeah. I forget his name. Yeah. Frank somebody, anyway. Ab- um, yeah, Frank Abnigail, yeah. So Frank Abnigail he was a good con man, but I, I, don't, I don't think he had the sociopathy of Tom Ripley, though.
0: No, no, think no. he was a real no, I don't person, think so either. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when, when do con men dimensions. cross
1: over? Yeah, when do con men cross over into full criminal behavior? You know, like con men are sometimes just people who just want to make money, and then that's it, and that, mm-hmm. that's all they want to do is just make money for themselves. There's a moment where they where they cross over when they want to be more than what they are, and not just be happy with a little bit of extra, you know, from people, you know.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. At what point do they? Um, I was going to pick up on something you just said, buddy. Like, do you think, right? Do you think that a character like Tom Ripley could be taken seriously in today's time. I mean, think of it, right? With technology and social media and blueprints, Tom, I mean, Tom just stays ahead by playing advantage over the media and the police, but today's networking surely would offer oh, yeah. more ways to slip up and more ways to incriminate yourself, right? But- The police would have made the about mistake it, like, about
1: him being Dicky in the apartment, in in, in, in yeah. quote-unquote Dickie's apartment. The Italian police would have, would, would have got him there for sure.
0: But it's not impossible.
1: DNA with ma- Freddie Miles, that would have connected as well.
0: Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, the blood typing, that would have done that. But- Maybe if he catfished a lot, and maybe if he did wear that prosthetics, maybe you could have a modern Tom Ripley story. You know, you could.
1: Yeah, I'm curious if will that new series that they're doing will that be set in it's the modern period. day, or will it's that period. be set?
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. It's period.
1: Um, going back to what you're saying about the social engineering, I would just say his mm. evidence of wow, he, how he's able to. Communicate with letters uh, being Dicky and anticipating the letters that he would receive, and how he mm-hmm. communicated with Marge so well, as if he was Dicky in the letters, able to oh, basically yeah, yeah. cross that 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 like wall of intimacy in those mm-hmm. correspondences that Marge bought full, hook, line, and sinker that it was Dicky that was writing to her. But yeah. I, I think too is that Dick, but Marge is has also a a bias towards that Dicky. Is, t- is talking to her that she can't think of the possibility that Dickie is gone up until right. the very last minute. She finally agrees that he commits suicide. She doesn't think that mm-hmm. Tom yeah, did anything yeah. like that. What's that replaced him? No, because such no. that kind of idea is just so uh, bizarre to her. I, I can imagine mm-hmm. she wouldn't be able to put it together.
0: Yeah. It's so, easier for her to believe yeah. that Dickie didn't want anything to do with her than would ever take his own life. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And in a way she kind of, if, this is a, something that I kind of, I see. I don't know if you agree with me. He was so well at portraying Dicky uh, as Tom, Tom as Tom Ripley portraying Dicky that when Marge went to see him in Venice, she almost has a whole different attitude towards Tom Ripley than she did previously. It's, it's almost like like Dicky's aura is shining off of him, and she's kind of like only seeing Dicky in her own way, or for somehow she's like uh, stuck. She's somehow almost like in some sort of uh, thrall to Tom yeah, Ripley yeah. once he's in is I guess he's at the full at the full extent of his powers and yeah, she never really yeah. like like, it's like fully in the charged
0: film,
1: <laughs> it's very clear that the portrayal by Gwyneth Paltrow of Marge mm-hmm. is automatically sus of Dickie of course by like the end of the, of the story but here she walks away as if Dickie was Tom's best friend mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and yes and no uh, i i mean it, it's it's weird
0: yeah it is weird and you are right she's definitely definitely more naive than gwyneth paltrow's portrayal of her for the film which i i can understand yeah. why they did that for the film but um i i thought it was neat actually the way that she found the rings in the venice apartment because that's where i thought mm. that's where i thought it's all going to come together for her i thought that the, that the was the thing she needed down and it never did because tom was was able to take that and spin it towards a gosh, maybe this is a suicide thing, you know? And all of a sudden we've got this dad with the private detective and all of that stuff coming in, you know? I understand the suicide suggestion had been planted beforehand with his dad, but... um, And even that was a brilliant move on Tom's part because he knew that if he didn't... Like, he knew that would be a risk because it would bring dad and potentially, or ultimately this private detective over. But if he didn't do that, he would have to... he, He couldn't just cut off communication with his father. And the police were starting to hedge in around, you know, the whole thing. And if mm-hmm. a new angle hadn't been brought into the recipe, into the story, then he very well might've got caught in his own web, you know? So he needed to do very that, well. even though it was a risk. Uh, and he
1: was all about to kill Marge. Like he was almost yeah, about to yeah. do it. Yeah, he was. And he was kind of relieved that he didn't have to do it either. So again, yeah. the complexity of his character and his, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, four and a half, I gave as a whole to this, uh, principal and perpetrator. Uh, yeah, me too. You know, j- just j- just as you did. I'm trying to think of why the like something about it just says I don't want to give it a 5 totally. And I'm trying to I know to why. I think
0: <laughs> you you tell me why you didn't though.
1: I'm trying to figure that out. Like is it like 5 is something that I give a, I give a principal like it takes a lot of oomph to really back me? And maybe just mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. personally the stuff that Tom was doing was reprehensible. Mm-hmm. And I guess that just comes yeah. down to it. It comes to your own morality.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That definitely, definitely factored into it. For me, though, it was something that he did, which I I didn't really buy into. Like, narratively, I understand why he did it, because it it enabled him to get away with money. But I didn't see it as something that the character... I found it an inconsistency, ultimately. This is where I'm going. I found it okay. an inconsistency that he... Tried just when the emotional um, maelstrom was at its f- most fierce for his family, he went in there with the trust fund thing. Like, I felt that oh, was, yeah. that was a gesture that I just didn't believe he needed to do as a character. But narratively, yeah. it sets up his escape. And I know that he needs money when he gets to Greece. He needs the money. So in order to continue to live that lifestyle, Ripley needs that money. But equally, if he just got to Greece, he could have found another scam somehow, you know? I just... I didn't like the toll. Can you also give me your trust fund? Tap, 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 type, type, type. Because yeah, I it, promised it to Tom. You could,
1: argue, you, know? you could argue that he was addicted and, and uh, he was definitely mm-hmm. power, empowered by yeah. what he was doing. And yeah. I guess he was just like, wanted to roll, the, he became a gambler really. And he just yeah. wanted to roll the dice yeah. again. It's like an addiction. To get that right? feeling
0: like you were reading four out. Four yeah. more
1: books. Yeah. It was like four more books after this, right? Of him yeah. probably doing the same thing. So maybe, yeah. 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 Once, but, you, once you start, you can't stop, right? That's the whole thing is like, Dickie's killed, then all of a sudden, okay, that's all cleaned up and then he thinks he's okay, but then he still has to deal with marriage, still has to deal with Freddie, the police, you know, and he still has to deal with Dickie's father. He still has to deal with the forged checks being caught, like all those situations, like they keep spiraling and spiraling. So it's time that you hurdle an obstacle like that he was given, it empowers him even more that he can just beat the system. So why yeah, not yeah. freaking go for the trust fund? <laughs> I guess so. You, you, you know,
0: yeah. Uh. You see him as this evolving kind of monster, just this maw that keeps getting bigger and more ambitious. Yeah, fair enough, I guess so. But I just, I, I was kind of hoping he would slide away without that because there was too much, there was too much convenience to that for me. Like, Greenleaf, Richard, not Richard Greenleaf, sorry. What's his dad's name? Herbert. Herbert, yeah. There was too much, what? Seriously? He left it to you? Like, I just thought that the, in, the private in, the investigator would have put all that together, like, it's the biggest yeah. sort of look at me target on my face that really exists in the whole story. And it comes out at really an emotionally awkward time for the family. And I just did, I think whatever. But hey, half mark, you know, that's all it was. Um, so that's us. Back that's to go us into with the P. investigation. Yeah. Yeah. We, I think we've got, I have nothing else to say about perpetrator.
1: Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of, you, you know, the, the whole thing with the, now, you mentioned that as a kind of a character flaw towards Tom Ripley, to our to our principal slash perpetrator. I found that what you mentioned about the trust fund, that to me, while I did defend it saying, like, I can see them saying, like, okay, this is Tom rolling the dice, I do think that move with the trust fund, that to me was a bit of an implausibility. And the fact, the way that even though, like, okay, Herbert Greenleaf is dealing with a uh, possibly uh, with a dead son who possibly committed suicide. And then of course, a dying wife of cancer. So his world's all crumbling down before. Like, yeah. He was yeah. like a despondent mess, even when he arrived there, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he, he was hardly talking and whatnot. And he, he, so that's believable in a sense, but at the same time, the, 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 the run for the trust fund, I'm like, uh, that was, yeah, that was a bit of, that was a bit implausible to me. So that shaved off half of a uh, point for me. Uh, Because overall, like, the twists and turns of this narrative, uh, how it interlocks with the characters in the story, characters that, like, will pop up out of nowhere or just, like, you know, convenient to the plot. Yes, but they serve the story well when they do Mm -hmm. appear. Mm -hmm. They serve Tom's intentions, his motivations. Uh, They give him his reactions required to propel the story. Um, I don't think there was anything in this this book that was, to me, beyond, you know, one or two narrative flaws that really... Mm -hmm. You know, brought it to a lower mark than what I gave the principal. So mm-hmm. I'm at four and a half with with the uh, investigation, investigation on this story.
0: Nice one. Yeah. Well, I went full marks with this because although okay, I w- although I had that little misgiving about the ending, um, I just thought the book was so 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 damn well written and the character, the stream of consciousness narrative. You know, you feel like you're reading a first person point of view, but you're not. You're reading third na- third person. Exposition, but it doesn't always feel that way. It's just so seamless and believable, and sympathetic, and questioning. I I thought this book was really compelling. um I do ask you this though, buddy. Like, how do you feel about the motivating incident in this story? I, I forgave it. I found it a bit kind of shoehorned in there. But you know, Mister Greenleaf following Tom and, and catching him in the bar and asking him to go to Italy on his time to order his son to return. You know, from to save his save Dicky from painting, essentially. Um, you know, the sick wife, like you say, fears over the family business. How believable did you find that motivating incident, that, that Tom Ripley would be the friend that he sends instead of someone closer to Dickie?
1: I think the father was desperate and he didn't know his son well enough that he wanted to find someone who didn't know his son. And then when he heard about Tom Ripley, that was like he automatically, he's an older gentleman in the 1950s mm-hmm. from an older generation where, you know, everyone should have a sense of morality and, you know, Rig- rigidity and composure, sure, yeah. and they should have a sense of decorum that they act a certain way and that like, everyone has a gentleman's agreement, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that he felt that, you know, it was naive to believe that this young man who he followed into a bar, who we heard that was that was a, an associate of Dickie's, a friendly associate, apparently, from, what was it, the yeah. Schweitzer's? Shriver, Shriver. Yeah. So they seem to hit that he was a good egg and uh, that's why they sent him. To, that's why. And, and so mm-hmm. the father wants to find a solution to his problem. He needs someone to take over his company. He needs to bring his son home to see his mother before he die before she dies, or just at least, you know, in the last couple of months, spend time with the family. He wants to bring his family back together that he feels that he's losing. Um, mm. And also, of course, to make sure that his okay. own personal security yeah. of his business is, is, is there. Yeah. So Tom is okay. the person that you go to. The problem is he's so naive that he doesn't really do background checks on those type on this uh-huh. person because yeah. his he's just naive about it. And I found that believable to me. Okay, that's cool. my impression. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. No problem. No problem. I just had to ask the question because I had I had a, a fuzziness about it, so I thought I'd ask you. Yeah. But no, man. The the narrative was for me is just it's just top top shelf, man. Like it's remarkable how well and tightly ratcheted Highsmith's suspense and the reader's tension can be without having and this is the thing about the book, right? Like I don't find that there is any great sense of catharsis because there's no capture, no. there's no good prevailing, but you get the breaks when you need them. From the tension whenever he's writing a letter or you're kind of offered a look at, you know, Venice or Rome or wherever he chooses. The writer chooses to give you this breath. I just want to read this quick little section here and I think it's really nice. It's indicative of the true thriller pace of the book. He started with the top drawer. This is just after Dickie's dead. He started with the top drawer, for two reasons. The recent letters were important, in case there were current situations that had to be taken care of immediately. And also because, in case Marge happened to come back this afternoon, it wouldn't look as if he were dismantling the entire house so soon. But at least he could begin, even this afternoon, packing Dickie's biggest suitcase with his best clothes. Tom was still pottering about the house at midnight. Dickie's suitcases were packed, and now he was assessing how much the house furnishings were worth, what he would bequeath to Marge, and how he would dispose of the rest. Marge could have the damn refrigerator. That ought to please her. The heavy carved chest in the foyer, which Dicky used for his linens, ought to be worth several hundred dollars, Tom thought. Dicky had said it was 400 years old when Tom had asked him about it. Maybe that's not great tension, but it is in the sense that he knows he's got to act quick. The sentence structure, you know, it's like punctuated well. It's, it's quick. It's brief. It, and I mean, the whole book really has this punishing pace. I mean, I don't know how you found the pace itself, but... For me, it was, was unforgiving. The entire, it was unforgiving. The entire book. Yeah,
1: there was yeah. no moments of breath in that story whatsoever. He was going to make a decision that I disagreed with, but then I understood why he was making that decision, and yeah. I just everything just snowballed and snowballed. It was like, it was like a it, yeah, it was like you're on the edge of your seat reading the book. It's very different being on because of the visuals on a, on a movie and when watching a film. Yeah, it is, and yeah. you know the visuals that are being shown to you that create that anxiety that create that. On the edge of your seatness. But when you Uh read it in a Uh book, it's a totally different experience where it's like it's an entirely, your body is entirely shaken with anxiety It's
0: a a properly tight, tight read. Let me ask you this one, buddy, before we move away from investigation. What did you make of the scene in Montebello where Tom tries to convince Dickie to transport the doped up corpse to Paris via like the train? I thought that that was really interesting, particularly how Highsmith showed Tom's Petulance, You know, his kind of reaction to Dickie's disinterest in it. And I think that whole thing kind of boiled over into what amounts to like a lover's spat. And this, although it wasn't a homosexual scene, there was that tension there where Tom wanted his partner, if we can use that term, to do this with him. it was like, it was an important kind of a forging of their their shared passion for having fun and adventure and being together, you know? And when Dickie's like, I don't want to trust this ropey fucking Italian guy. Like, no, I don't want to do it. Like, is that a turning point in the relationship coming just 10 points? Ten pages before the death of Dicky, do you think that also could contribute? Maybe this the fact that he realizes that this isn't his adventure companion for for life.
1: Uh, I would say it's both for Tom and for Dicky in that situation. Yeah, right, then and so there. You,
0: yeah, you read that like Dicky was scene.
1: already kind of Dicky was already kind of cold to him after like, and or more suspicious of his feelings towards him mm-hmm. after the whole um, dressing incident and everything like that's that. that's true. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. here this is when he realizes that this guy is trying too hard. And I think he's starting to see the parasitical nature of of Tom. And I think that it bothers Dickie more than even the, I don't care if this guy secretly, you know, is in love with me. As long as he doesn't uh, affect my relationships and stuff, he can think Mm -hmm. what he wants. You know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. I think Dicky was able to put that aside and and maybe kind of, or ignore it or or realize that it didn't exist in the end. Like he was, uh-huh. I think he was willing to give Tom the benefit of the doubt. But then when you get to this incident here where Tom has this mm-hmm. crazy hairbrained scream and because Tom knows that he's kind of losing Dickie to Marge at this point, right? Dicky mm-hmm. is much more reserved in their relationship than he was previously. And yes. Tom needs to get Dicky back. He needs something outrageous to kind of, because he sees Dicky as this sort of like, This, like, rich kid looking for adventure, type, and who just you know, something spontaneous and exciting, and that's what he thought this was. And he missed the mark completely on what actually Dickie is all about. You know, Mm -hmm. Dickie Mm -hmm. likes the idea of living, of being independent, of living on his own, being able to walk down the street and talk to you know, all the locals that he sees there. He enjoys being kind of like the American uh, celebrity. In that town and everyone, I think that revolving around him and this, another thing too, is that he did not come up with this idea. Tom did. And mm, Dickie mm. just, and, yeah. And
0: that's, that's, that's his a arrogance, big, that's a big know? point. That's a big point. Here he is in Montebello. He's still all, he's still technically a guest of Marge and Dicky, and he's the guy starting to create plots. He's the guy trying to stretch out pavement for a future. He's really overstepping the welcome of what they're offering, and I don't yeah. I think that I think when he's kind of shot back with this, he's made to feel really really small in this bigger this bigger picture that he kind of thought he had a bit of control to exercise in. So, there's so much psychology wrapped up in this, so much impression reading and um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like psychopathy, as you say. This is, I just thought the book was was so interesting and lean. I think you might have gestured towards that. There's nothing in here that doesn't need to be in here, and no. all the scenes match. There's just no redundancy. There's no bloat in the text. It's just really, really tight. And uh, one of the one of the best stories I've read in a long time. So I, I'm going full marks for the investigation. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I I, I enjoyed it so much that. I yeah. feel like it's uh, deserving of, of top score, so I went five. So let's move on to the environment, okay. Josh. Now you 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 intimated that we've been here in a lot of these places, and um, I don't know if you're worried about going down a rabbit hole with <laughs> re- remembrance, but um, the Via Appia stuff with the uh, Freddie's death. Yeah, this 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 communicated to you, huh? For
1: sure. I mean, we we rented those uh, old Little school bites. bikes, yeah. And, yeah. and we were. Driving around.
0: uh, My ass still hurts.
1: Yeah. And also the blisters because I broke in those new shoes. Like we went to Rome. We're both very interested in Roman civilization and culture. And when he moved to Scotland, you know, $200 in your pocket and you could get anywhere in Europe from that point. So we went to Rome at that that point in 2007. yeah. yeah, yeah, Yeah. So when we went to Rome... We got ourselves a hostel, a, a, a very decent one, to be fair. And then yeah, we were staying in the. We, then we didn't go on anywhere. to like. We didn't, uh, you know, have any big tours or or charters that we that 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 we went on. We went to places that we wanted to go visit ourselves. So we kind of experienced the, uh, you know, Rome in our own way while we were there. And taking a bike down the Via Appia seemed like a cool idea. So we did that. Our buttocks paid for it, of course, but it was still pretty interesting.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, yeah.
1: I, as I mentioned, we saw all of the old Roman tombs along the way because the Romans buried their dead outside the city. That was part of their religion. Um, you, they, there is there no dead bodies within like the sacred line, the sacred, you know, circle around the city of Rome. That was mm-hmm. the rule. And they also had cremation. Uh, that was their big yeah. thing. Yeah, So, but these tombs were built along the Appian Way. Uh, mm-hmm. And... The Via Appia, you can take, you can go rent, uh, a, there's many places along the way where you can get like a, there's like a cafes, restaurants, and they provide you bikes that you can rent and you can take them all the way down the Via Appia way. And we went all the way down. It was, it was pretty we cool. Did, yeah. We We, did. All we the right outside tombs. the city. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, all, all the way to like where the aqueducts started. We were pretty far out. It's and, really fascinating
0: uh, too. I remember that there was a point at which the the tourism stopped and it wasn't like a gradual stop. It was just, okay, here's where the shops and cafes stop and here is just the old... Antique road, on you go, right? Like if you want to yes. go, go ahead. Because the, the really stones antique. grew much, much stronger, much deeper set, yeah. and you knew that this wasn't part of the municipality regular roadworks no, <laughs> uh, review, an, not. annual review, right? This was like, okay, go ahead if you want to, and uh, it was it was good fun. That was a good, that was a tiring day because that was the same day we did the Baths of Caracalla, wasn't it? We came That's back true. from we came back from the uh, the catacombs and we went over there. Yeah.
1: The catacombs, and then we went to the baths. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, beautiful city for those who haven't seen it. Like it, it's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. I definitely want to go there again because I want to experience the more of the uh, the medieval Renaissance part of Rome. That's one of the ones I want to take a look at, like the Borgia history and and whatnot.
0: Yeah, um, and Club Julius Caesar. We want to go back there. You, you also want to.
1: Oh, of course. <laughs> that was a bar that was like right at the end of the street, that on the <laughs> corner cool. of the uh, the corner of the street, uh, just down. Um, Good times. From where our hostel was. Mm. That was a pretty cool place,
0: yeah. And we also went to Naples um, briefly on our way yes. to Vesuvius. Now, I, I've been back Not since. Not to Mangibello, it doesn't
1: exist, but...
0: No, Montebello doesn't <laughs> exist, but we did go to Naples and to the Amalfi Coast, and that was good as well. Yeah. Um, I remember getting off the train and uh, spending that evening in Naples where uh, the traffic it was just madness and... Uh, a little bit of xenophobic yeah. eff- uh, attack, not maybe not foreigners, but the foreign, foreigns, kind of the foreign traffic. I don't know what you'd call that. Yeah, Z- xenotrafica the,
1: the, the Vespa's going by so quickly, like yeah. they would have just plowed you over completely. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we went, because the reason why we went to Naples, we didn't spend the day in Naples. We were only there for like a uh, few hours. For a little while, we went to because uh, we, you go to Naples, and that takes you all the way to. Um, Pompeii. So we spent the day at Pompeii. And then on the way back, uh, we had pizza, I believe. That we had like a... Good guess. We had, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we had the seafood pizza, actually, because we're in the on the Malfi Coast. So you got to have the, the Napoli seafood, right? We had like anchovies and stuff on our pizza. It was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's nice. And then we started looking for a gelato place, but we still had to catch a train. It was getting dark. And some of those alleys were pretty dark. And <laughs> well, we ended up we walking go down like- them.
0: On the boulevard, right in the middle of the road, didn't we? Yeah, we just kind of
1: and got a good picture. And Naples that, is I also thought. like the heart of like the mafia as well. So those kind of popular culture uh biases were in my head at the time. So I was a little bit anxious as it was getting darker.
0: Yeah, preying on the, uh, not... the Western homeschool boy.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Scott was hometown
1: Wanted to get his not... just wanted to get his his gelato,
0: and that was it. And we did get it. And then we got on the train. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, that was a good trip and uh, it was lovely. But you know, in in saying all this, we're moving on to the environs, obviously. I don't think you got to go to Rome. This book transports you, man. It really does. Like having been there, I could obviously picture a lot of it, but Highsmith does some of the heavy lifting. Yep, she does, but she does some heavy lifting here. She puts you as a tourist with the same excitement that Tom Ripley has going to these places, you know, and that's a big part of Tom's character too, is this ambitious realization of what the money can bring him. And I think that you you do sit there in his eyes and enjoy this for a little while before the madness starts in each of these settings.
1: I was just thinking, like, Tom and and Dickie, when they first go to Rome after that, like, when it's it's fine to spend that one day in Rome that really pissed Marge Mm -hmm. off. Uh, Or it seemed to anyway. I was just thinking of like, you know, Tom and Dickie in Rome. Is that kind of like, you know, like some kind of bizarre version of Roman holiday? You know, like all they need to have them (laughs) is like driving around on a Vespa, you know? I guess it kind of is. Yeah. 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 I don't know who's Peck or Hepburn in that situation. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
0: Yeah. You know, we started off talking about that scene at the Via Appia, which, I mean, the description for that scene is great, but to me, there's something in the writing that suggests of romance, and I'll I'll tell you what it is. It's that sentence, Josh, where Tom is looking for the right place, and then there's like an ambiguity to the next sentence. I'll just just bring you to it, okay? It's just a very, very short section here, but he's trying to get rid of the body, okay? Freddie's body. Yeah, here we go. The Via Appia Antica stretched out before him, grey and ancient in the soft lights of its infrequent lamps. Black fragments of tombs rose up on either side of the road, silhouetted against the still, not quite dark sky. There was more darkness than light, and only a single car ahead coming this way. Not many people chose to take a ride on such a bumpy, gloomy road after dark in the month of January, except perhaps lovers. The approaching car passed him. Tom began to look around for the right spot. Freddy ought to have a handsome tomb to lie behind, he thought. There was a spot ahead, With three or four trees near the edge of the road and a doubtless, and doubtless, a tomb behind them or part of a tomb, Tom pulled off the road by the trees and shut off his lights. He waited a moment, looking at both ends of the straight, empty road. I just find that little space between the sentences, Not many people chose to take a ride on such a bumpy, gloomy road, except perhaps lovers, tom began to look around for the right spot you know it's almost like he is engaging in some dark romance here you know like if it was Mm. dicky maybe something else if it was another guy maybe something else if but here he is with a dead body like the only type of romance he can find is you know the romance of death you know Mm. i I just think that's a very good point like there's an ambiguity to it i'm not trying to sound artsy fartsy i just feel like there's that there's a strangeness about some of the way the sentences here are positioned, and it's just really compelling the the, the setting writing. I like it. Rome, Naples, Sicily, Montebello, uh, the Amalfi Coast—really is where we are, and yeah. of course, uh, of course, Rome is a big part when uh, yeah, we get there. Not much of America in here, but this is a great travelogue. It's a knockout as a travelogue. It brings Italy to life. Both the interior and exterior spaces are decorated. She's 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 driving it with warmth and color, the food, the ambience. You do get wrapped up in the things you're reading because so much of it is new to us and would have been new to American readers in the fifties who didn't have a chance to travel, I guess, to, to Italy.
1: Especially after the war. Yeah. Totally,
0: yeah. Like, Remember it's Italy great. was yeah. was fascist for like yeah. 1920s to
1: 1945 right so
0: ah, right, so I, I i love this um i really like the uh, the environment here i went full marks for environment in this story too because i i this is right where i want to be in a book right where i want to be and yeah, was, things came things came to I was life five yeah you were five as well cool i was five that's right well how about the supporting cast buddy what did you think of all the extra characters
1: uh in, it, i, you know, I you gave you got a few I gave supporting cast 4.5. I felt that every character served the narrative perfectly. You have Fausto, you know, the young, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The young Italian teacher. Yeah, I liked him. I him. Fausto was great. <laughs> uh, and cool. just the way that that um, Ripley described him, like, Ripley didn't dislike the man at all. But you could see why Dickie liked him as well. You could see, and, and you know, like when he shows up in Rome looking for, for, for Dickie or looking for Tom, you know, and... I I think there was some apprehension on Tom's part where he didn't want to, like, include him in in this, but also he didn't want Tom, he didn't want Faust to find out about it Mm -hmm. as well. Like, there was that, and there was that kind of anxiety in in that Mm portrayal. I I guess the one kind of thing I I would probably say is that... um, the detect like the police to me were fleshed out but i don't think tom was really since we're seeing this through tom's perspective mm-hmm. we're not really seeing the police side of things in this case here they're antagonists to him
0: well i i agree i, to- I do totally agree with you they are antagonists to him but i do think that tenente roverini is played out a little bit there's there's a line that he delivers which i think it, it's not given any time by highsmith but i think mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I was reaching, I want to find this, but I read it the first time and I made the note right on my page that um, I think that this is great police work, if, if I'm right, okay? I'll just read the section for you. Tom gave an involuntary sigh because the boat incident was apparently closed. No, I only met him once when he was getting off the bus in Montebello. I never saw him again. Aha, said the tenente, taking this in. He was silent a minute as if he had run out of questions, and then smiled. Ah, Mangibello, a beautiful village, is it not? My wife comes from Mangibello. Ah, indeed, Tom said pleasantly. See, sì, my wife and I were there on our honeymoon. A most beautiful village, Tom said. Grazie. He accepted the Nazionale that the Nenete offered him. Tom felt that this was perhaps a polite Italian interlude, a rest between rounds. Now, the reason I like that, I wonder if... This is even true or not. But you see, just imagine the scene, right? Like, the guy you're questioning and maybe suspicious of says something about a place, Mongebello. You, as a police detective, say, oh, my sister, my wife comes from Mongebello. Which would suggest to the person you're questioning, I know something about that place. And if you see a change in reaction to the guy that you're questioning, you might be able to catch him out in a lie. Do you know what yes, I mean?
1: exactly, and, and exactly. So may,
0: maybe I'm giving too much credit to Roverini in this scene, but I thought that that was a great line about his wife being from the town to possibly flush out his nervousness, you know? And if you saw a change hmm. in expression there, but Tom is obviously, he just plays it flat. Um, he plays yeah. it genially. Did you think that, or do you think I'm reaching? Like, is that just a naive I, I, police detective? So
1: I didn't catch that at the time, I was right. more kind of thinking of Tom's headspace uh, okay. because that's where the writing was put to okay, but you pointing that out i the ambig- there's definitely ambiguity there for sure uh, I would say even po- even not just ambiguity I would say that you're probably onto something in what Highsmith attended
0: hmm. It's just such, yeah, and that's just a, another example of the writing. The writing is just so. These are the
1: people that he's so up good, against. Yeah. These are the obstacles yeah. that he's yeah. up against. So Roverini is, uh, yeah. So uh, thank you for coming, uh, being the Calvary to the rescue there uh, for me on that because I was saying how like the police are a bit nondescript for me, and then I just remember that Roverini sequence and whatnot. Uh-huh. So this goes to show what you focus on when you read a story and when you mm-hmm. when you don't totally, catch certain yeah. nuances. Yeah.
0: How did you feel about Mr. McCarran? Like when he takes Tom out of the room at the end to go down to the restaurant? Did you think he was going to try to twist him there, or or what? I like, did. Yeah. yeah, I thought this too, would be too. like
1: the real. This would either be like the reveal, uh-huh. like you know, this would be when the hammer meets the anvil.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But really, it was just almost just like an aff- it was just like an affirmation of like mm-hmm. Dickie's of Dickie's death of Dickie's suicide. Really,
0: yeah. Mr. McCarran so, disappointed me a little bit. He he was a bit. He's just a bit gormless, wasn't he? A little bit plot dumb, a little bit gormless, and you know, I don't know. But there you are. There you have it. I mean, there were other he characters. He wanted though. his money.
1: He wanted to get out.
0: Yeah, there were other characters. Yeah, that's true because he wasn't a good traveler, was he? Like he made that point. No, yeah. Um, yeah, Mr. He wasn't Malouf, a good traveler. The Venice antique dealer at Daniele, who uh, who throws a cocktail party, he's he's just in it very briefly, but he's a bit of an annoyance because Tom and wants to go has to go out yeah. to this thing right with marriage. He just gave and, me anxiety
1: yeah. because like, <laughs> yeah. uh, well I don't again. It's a situation where like if you watch like I don't know, it's as, it's, it's the idea it's the it's the anxiety of being found out mm-hmm. because then it's going to be almost like not just. Uh, you're really worried more about just the embarrassment of being found out and you have that second kind of embarrassment and so I just felt that like Marge is going to be there Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Aloof is going to say something and then it's going to make Marge connect and then there's going to be a whole show, a whole row, like a a Uh big you know, explosion, and it doesn't happen, but the anxiety is still there, so you're always sitting mm-hmm. on that powder keg. Mm-hmm, so, again, yeah. another hurdle for him to leap. A minor one compared to, you know, the police, but still another hurdle.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then there's De Massimo, who's the painter in Rome that never really existed, <laughs> but I think he's De neat. Massimo the Massimo, he doesn't exist. <laughs> the way the character is written. I, I like the way Tom really commits to him. He's cool, you know. He just uh, a nice little you've already yep. mentioned. Isn't it neat though? Marge. Right? If you think about, Yeah, Marge, I'll get to her in a moment. But if you think about how the story starts with his pal Cleo, right? Who is an artist as well. Contrast the way yeah. she does her paintings in these little tiny postage stamps, right? And Tom has a lot of respect for her as an artist. And then he gets to see Dickie's art and he's got that sort of like, oh, that's shit. Like the same color blue <laughs> yeah. for Marge's eyes he used in the ocean. Like there's no skill there. That snobbishness comes out. But isn't Cleo an interesting yeah. little character? No,
1: I think she's cool. Yeah. She's cool. She's very cool. I wanted to see more. I wonder if she appears in the the
0: next uh, couple of books. It'd be nice to see because she wants to be in a relationship with Tom and she has, but she has a very good understanding of him as a friend as well. I think that she's a nice, nice young woman. It would be nice to see more of her in the story. But uh, anyway, it's neat how art kind of operates as a, as as a stabilizer through the story, you know?
1: Yeah. And the idea of the art, Dickie not being great at art is just Mm -hmm. showing in a Mm -hmm. deep way that he's kind of lost himself on what he wants to. He doesn't want to be with his father. He's some kind of rebellion against his father. I think he just wants to escape his troubles. He doesn't want to deal with his dying mother and he doesn't want his father. He's rebelling against his father. He's still young. Yeah, totally. And Art is Art was his escape to go and do that. And that's the stubbornness, that mm-hmm. I want to keep yeah. trying at Art. He probably knows that he sucks, but yeah. he keeps going at it anyways because he likes be, I think he himself, like Ripley, is putting on this persona of Dickie, the trust fund kid, who is now like this, uh this uh, this lovable eccentric um mm-hmm. american that everyone in Mongibello loves or mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he's part of that of that set, you know? Yeah. And yeah. guys like Freddie rein, reinforce that as well for him.
0: They do. I mean I think because
1: Freddie's a contradiction because Freddie is when he's when he goes from Dickie trying to be like this open-minded artistic type. When Freddie comes into it, it's all back to the old boys club, mm-hmm, you know?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. found, I found Dickie is, a little flat, to be honest. Like, I, I obviously, you're given what you need to get from him, and he is yeah, he's Jew only edited it for 80 pages. Kind
1: of, mm-hmm. Law's performance has kind of taken over. I will confess that Ju Law's performance has kind of taken me over of what I would expect from Dickie in the novel. Right. So, okay. I did find him kind of a flat character uh, compared to, you know, the other ones in in the novel because he's in a way he is kind of a plot device i suppose yeah uh he's a Mm mcguffin but he does have a personality but i don't think heismith was interested in what he had to say Mm -hmm. it was what tom made of him is what interested heismith and what compels the story
0: uh, you asked about Marge. I think that she's probably the most interesting character aside from Tom himself here in the book. I like mm. the way that she's written. And I like the way that she's written, even though she is consistently naive. Um, and that, you know what? It's not. It's fucking consistently human is what she is. She's consistently human. Yes. She's not consistently naive. She's rounded enough to make us wonder just when she's going to catch on. But like a lot of us, Tom manages to keep her off the scent. And like a lot of us, she she wouldn't And never did catch on and that's okay he's social
1: engineer is her denial too he does
0: he really does i like marge she's a victim in the story but she's also she's also resourceful enough to get up and go like she doesn't throw herself into a swooning pit of despair she does that maybe a little bit in her own way but she she gets up and she goes to munich she tries to develop for herself a new circle of friends a new life and she publishes her book so there's a bit of a, a bonus there and like you say when she goes back to Venice, and she sees Tom in that position. She has, she's only interested in solving it. She's not interested in getting with him again. And I, I kind of like that arc of her, you know. Yeah, absolutely, I do. I like and that. Yeah,
1: I, th- I think she, she deep down, she really does care for Dicky. I think mm-hmm. she wanted to make Dicky a better person, and that's why I was very sympathetic to her. Like. Even Tom tries to write her off as a nag, but he fails completely. And he knows that he does because he does like, I think he wants Marge to like him and to appreciate him. Mm -hmm. I think he did want that. Um, Mm -hmm. It was only when the the first rejection of him happened when she didn't laugh at his impression. That's when he kind of turned against her completely.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. Do you get the feeling that Highsmith likes Marge? Do you get the feeling that like her tone when she's writing Marge's character? Do you feel like she likes Marge? I think she's ambivalent. yeah. Okay.
1: The way that she describes, like, her body and stuff like that, and uh, it was almost way, that's like, is this how Highsmith likes her, Mm. you know, her women? I'm Mm. curious to see, like, I think she has sympathy for that type of character, for that type of personality, but at the same time, she also finds that personality easy to uh, pull the wool over the eyes of. Yeah,
0: yeah, Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there you go, buddy. I mean, that that's us talk through the pipes. I, I was a 23 overall for that. And just counting up your score here. You can add a half point. To mine, by the way,
1: because okay. I was being conservative, but you know what? I, I I love this book, and I think that the 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 investigation it, it, it's a five. It's absolutely it's a five. There are there are books out there that are that are perfect novels, but they have one or two flaws, mm-hmm. and so let's just let this one you know be the same case.
0: Okay, okay. it's a five. Sure, it's a five okay.
1: for me. So you can add an extra point.
0: All right. Well, in that case, my man, um, you are at a 23.5 and I am at a 23. So we're eye to eye on this one. And we yeah, both both strongly, strongly recommend it. So if you've made it through our entire show on The Talented Mr. Ripley and you haven't yet read the book, A, we hope we haven't spoiled it for you. But B, even if we have, it's such a well-written book that you'll get a lot from it if you go and read it now. That's
1: when a book is really good when you can read it over again and see yeah. something that you never saw before, yeah. or that you you might have heard the story of what it's all about. But when you experience it page by page, and as it, you're absorbing the story and 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 looking at these different mindsets and these different perspectives, and also just like uh, drinking in the scenery and the world that she's trying to portray that she mm-hmm. did portray, I, I should say, uh, mm-hmm. d- you know, it's your response will be inevitable that, you yeah. know, this is a great novel. Yeah, And I say that with complete confidence.
0: I think that's a great way to end. And Josh, you know, uh, 15 years before Ripley returns, Highsmith decides to go back there. I would be more than happy to continue reading the Ripley ad with um, the next tom ripley story which i believe is ripley underground i think that one comes out in 1970 so uh hey if you're up for it let's add it to our reading list next year pencil me
1: in mm. yeah we were discussing it earlier i think um and you agree with me i think for the next season too uh, if any of this excites any of our listeners uh we're going to check out the first uh jack reacher novel by lee child
0: yeah i think that's a good shout i think we'll do that one next season yeah for sure cool
1: throw that on with the talented mr ripley sequel
0: that's a wrap and thanks everybody for listening for tuning in um we're glad to be back here on lighting the pipes you can find us on uh instagram and email us of course at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com yeah drop us a line hit us up on the socials and uh, give us a review if you're listening to this it would be uh, always helpful to get good positive reviews so that we can uh, let others like you find our show and uh, we'll we'll be continuing josh won't we with uh, our reading we've got uh couple of good stories coming up next we're going to take a little break i think and double up on our bond podcast we might treat listeners to a different sort of mystery just as a little stopgap before we get on to the moonstone by wilkie collins we might uh might shoehorn in a little john gardner what do you think
1: yes not on lighting the pipes but on our you have to check out our uh, bond by numbers podcast uh as it will be yeah. featured on there
0: yeah and if you like your um If you like your James Bond, get yourself over to Bond by Numbers, where uh, we are joined by Jeff Chapman. And the three of us go through the world of Bond, as we have been doing for three or four years now. And we're going to start up a new season very, very soon with uh, more great content over there. So thank you, my good man. This has been a lot of fun, and I'm pleased that we saw this book Eye to Eye.
1: Me too. It's been a pleasure. Everyone out there, uh, stay healthy, stay safe.
0: Yeah, take care, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. Talk to you soon on Lighting the Pipes.
1: Ciao.